Hi, I'm George Dietrich. Welcome to Chicago Crystal. Welcome, George, to Chicago Crystal. Um, I've been following some of your work for a while, and it's really good to have you uh, on the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, I have like some a bunch of notes and things that we can talk about later, but I'm really curious. How did you get into programming? When did you uh, kind of first get the taste of programming and kind of uh, enjoy it? Well, actually about, I'm going to say 10 years ago or so, during my teenage years, it actually all started because of a video game. Oh, uh, which one? Eve Online. Oh, Eve Online. I I, th- I think I heard someone once call that spreadsheets and something. In space. Yeah. <laughs> yep. No way. That's the one. What'd you do in Eve Online, and what made you interested in programming? I basically ran like a little store, and Eve Online has a very good like third party developer support with public APIs and static database exports and everything. So I thought to myself, why can't I apply some like programming knowledge to make my tasks in game a little bit easier? Like having a store page, like to show prices and people will click a button and then open like contracts in game and all that fun stuff. Wow. Wow. And like, okay, so you're playing EVE Online, you see these public APIs and where do you go to like start doing what you're doing? Like what language or basically it was just JavaScript and HTML Back in the back in the day, as they call it, they had a like basically a JavaScript API with an in-game browser. Oh, so really? if you open the browser in-game, there was like special links that you could create that like interact with the game within the game itself. Oh wow, that's super cool. However, that has since been deprecated in favor of a more like JSON RESTful API. That's like quite a bit more modern. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, I guess. That's pretty interesting. Okay, so Eve Online, you're making kind of storefront pages with contracts. Yeah. Where did you go from there? Kind of from there, it was, I think I learned Rails. Me and a, fr- a friend of mine from that I met in game actually taught me quite a bit of Rails and AngularJS. So we kind of went from a single HTML page to like a Rails-powered API with like an AngularJS front end. And that was like the second evolution of the my like Eve tools, as you could call it. Okay. Is that Eve store and are you still playing Eve today? Not as much, but still like active in like the third party developer world. Oh, cool. Um, I guess I haven't seen that on your, on your GitHub page, but I might not know what to look for, I guess. Cause I'm not, it would be guessy. Okay. I made a uh, Google sheets like add on that allows you to communicate with Eve API. Oh, interesting. So like now does Eve support like Google sheets and then you can do development off of those. Eve used to have an XML API, which worked very well with like the import XML, like Google Sheets function. However, since they have now migrated to like that JSON RESTful API called ESI, it now requires an OAuth flow and everything. So it's a lot less accessible to like inexperienced or people who don't know how to program. So that's like what Gessie was mainly trying to do. Got it. Got it. I guess he actually uses Crystal as well. Kind of forgot about that. No way, really. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. It was like the, it was the first project that did Crystal. Now that I think of it. Oh, cool. And so, how? Well, maybe we should back up a little bit. Uh, uh, where did you go? Like, you started learning Rails and Angular, and um, 
did you start doing that professionally or was that just mostly side projects? No, ma- mainly just side projects. Okay. And then uh, what did you do after you learned kind of Rails and Angular and, and did that? Then I kind of actually got introduced to Crystal, so I switched to that. Oh, okay, okay. And that's when you started, okay, all your Crystal your crystal work and stuff like that. So you went mostly from HTML and JavaScript, Rails, and then to Crystal pretty much directly. Yep. Oh, wow, cool. When did you decide to kind of undertake the building a web framework? That started as also kind of a an EVE-related project. And then I wanted to make a like version three, I guess you could call it, of like my Eve tools. And I originally started out with Camel. However, like at this point, I'm now like working professionally at a at a company where we use like Symphony and PHP. Okay. And I wanted to kind of I really liked Symphony and some of the stuff that it applies to like creating a RESTful API, which I wanted to also do, also leveraging like the new Angulars. Okay. But there was some stuff I didn't like about Camel, so I decided to just give it a try. And this is also around the time that like annotations were like relatively new. So I kind of wanted to... It all started out as a, a prototype of just seeing if you could do routing based on annotations. Okay, and we're getting kind of into a feature of Crystal. I don't think many people actually implement, but some people might use. Mm-hmm. How would you explain annotations to someone who's listening? An annotation is like a special form of markup that you can like add on top of a method or instance variable or a type that stores metadata about whatever you applied it to. And that made it metadata can later be used in macros to like do whatever, whatever you want. Okay. That sounds pretty, sounds pretty good. I'm trying to think the one big place I've really encountered annotations in crystal in the standard library is, um, serializable, serializable too. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting places. It, It kind of, uh, blends the language in some ways. And you also covered macros. This is something that I'm like super interested in like Crystal and Crystal's implementation of like, you know, what are your thoughts on like the macro system? I I think it's quite powerful. There's definitely improvements that can be made, but at at this point it's probably going to be waiting until after 1.0. Probably. Oh, we should probably explain what, what are macros for someone who's listening. Macros, like essentially its own programming language in Crystal that expands to create valid crystal code that into the runtime of like your program. Yeah. So you can imagine it as writing some macro code that can abstract like boilerplate. An example of that would be crystals like getter and property macros that expand to just add instance variables and a getter or, and or a setter. Yeah. That's a really good example. Yeah, macros and annotations, I think are, um, I, I think that they would be considered more advanced topics in Crystal, at least in the Ruby community, using metaprogramming and kind of these, these type of tools is considered uh, somewhat more advanced. But I feel like they're becoming more accessible and easier, kind of uh, the more refined the language gets. Oh, yeah, they're definitely more advanced concept. Yeah, I think so. And you utilize these. I, I guess the reason why I'm asking about this is because you heavily utilize these in your web framework, um, Athena. Uh, I have not seen the usage of annotations and macros in any other framework as much as you use them. I think it's a really interesting choice. Uh, and you kind of were inspired by Symphony to like kind of mm-hmm. choose this as a style. As imagine kind of like future facing as like as annotations get more feature rich in crystal itself that kind of like directly benefits me as opposed to like other features which are 
maybe like at maturity. So there's like limiting the amount of things that you could do with them already. Oh, interesting. So like future expansion, you see like annotations yep. being a more. Okay. Let's just kind of talk a little bit about Athena. Athena has been through a few iterations. I've, I've seen it kind of come up a few times. And um, I have to admit, I have not built a full app in Athena, but I did notice that you have kind of quoted it as a rebirth. Can you kind of cover like yep. where it started and, and what is the rebirth? Sure. So the initial version, like over a year ago at this point, actually was used, it was implemented rather with like class methods. So you just have a class and then you define some class methods on it. And those class methods would have an annotation. And then at compile time using macros, those methods are read, the annotation is read, and then all those routes are added to like the router by like casting the method itself as like a proc, as you can do like the little arrow and then method name. Yeah. But then I kind of ran, realized that that's not like the best solution as you run into some like concurrency problems, since now there is no way to separate one request from another as they're using like the same method for both. Can you go over that a little more? I'm not really aware of this. So like if you have a class property mm-hmm. and you use that class property within like say a method or like an HTTP handler would be like a more common example. Oh, yeah. Since each request gets its own fiber, you could like have one request like mutate that value that the other request is like relying upon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that ran into some problems there. So I wanted to expand that, or not like, expand that, but like iterate on that to make it so that each request has its own like unique context, so that you won't be able to bleed data between different request threads. Okay, got it. And which directly led into like the second iteration of Athena, we're kind of switching to a more like instance method approach with like dependency injection. Yeah, I noticed you had a big dependency injection library that you extract into its own repo. I did, which recently came out with like third iteration of Athena. Okay, what was the big iteration, the third iteration about? Basically refactoring like the dependency injection side of things so that it can be a little bit more robust and a lot more feature rich than it used to be. The previous implementation like was kind of like terrible, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not 1.0 yet, so uh, you know, you can yep. you're allowed to y- your mistakes. Why dependency injection? It's it's uh not a pattern I see, I guess, man, mostly dependency injection I see used a lot in kind of enterprise frameworks or I guess uh Angular uses it quite heavily. Yep. Is that where you and- kind of inspired with it? Symphony actually uses it a lot as well. We use it quite a bit at work. And that was basically like my my framework that I have based everything off of. I, I just like it because it makes testing a lot easier. It allows you to kind of have some like object-oriented programming, like goals being relying on abstractions as opposed to like concrete types. Okay, cool. And we should probably explain dependency injection. We're covering a lot of terms that people might not know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So dependency injection is, I I mainly focus on like the service container side of dependency injection, where you have like another type that handles providing instances of objects to the other types that need them. So I guess a way to think of that would be abstracting the way that objects get provided to your constructor. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. I like that. So you provide a framework, you have dependency injection. You also decided not to write your own ORM. Is there a plan for an Athena ORM? Not for the short term, at least. That's I think that'd be quite a bit of work for not really a lot of gain. 
Okay. Were you the one who put in some annotations into the Granite ORM for things like read-only? When I was looking through the code, it seemed like in Granite, you could provide some annotations that certain uh, setters and getters would be exposed, I'm guessing, to like controllers. And then also certain things were read-only or both read and write. Is that is that right? That is not actually in Granite itself. I did, however, make a PR that was merged quite a while ago that allowed that basically switched the implementation of Granite to be annotation-based as opposed to macros. So like in, if you're familiar with Granite, there's the, the column macro that you use to define your properties. Basically, all that does is define an instance variable with an annotation on that instance variable. Oh, interesting. Okay. The like read-only and expose and all that, that would be part of the work-in-progress Athena serializer component that I'm going to be getting pretty close to releasing here. So in some senses, you're using annotations with other libraries to just provide a different interface for setting a lot of things that would be set in macros. That's, that's a big benefit of annotations is that they are framework agnostic. You could just, it's just an annotation on an instance variable. What the implementation is like doing with those, it's up to like the specific like module that you include if you implement it that way or whatever other shard that you require. It doesn't require its own like macro DSL. So you can have be like using multiple shards interchangeably and just like controlling the behavior via annotations as opposed to each one having its own macro DSL to control how it works. Okay, interesting. This is kind of a new concept for me. I mean, I've used annotations in other ways, but I haven't really thought about the design of a framework around them. Uh, this is something that like I'm I'm just kind of curious about. But could you use Athena and write it in a macro way and just not use annotations? Are they like directly interchangeable? No. Oh, okay. Well. Possibly, but the implementation in Macroland would be kind of like, I don't know, a little bit frowned upon. It's like where you use a macro and then you're editing a macro or editing a constant and then like using a macro finished hook to like get the state of that constant when everything's done. That's how like how Granite used to be implemented, but it's a little bit of a frowned upon as you're kind of essentially mutating constants, which is kind of like doesn't go together. That makes sense. Yeah, they're kind of called constants for a reason. Exactly. <laughs> in the name. So this is kind of, I like, I like the different style. I, so we in a previous podcast that probably is not released by the time we're talking, we've been talking about different web frameworks and I've been uh, trying to reach out to people who do different web frameworks. And I find that the variety in the community is a really positive thing. I think that, um, one thing that Ruby has is that it, it does have other web frameworks, but, um, Padrino and, and, a few other ones, Hanabi, Hanabi was renamed, but it is one of those things where if you have a, like one web framework and the only one that's healthy in the community, um, it means that if you don't like Rails, you just kind of leave the whole community. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that uh, Athena represents like a, a really good development in the Crystal community. I think it's pretty positive. It, it definitely took more inspiration from like not Ruby frameworks. Yeah. And I love that. I really like that it's coming in and doing that. I think that, um, You've introduced a lot of concepts that I've seen in other places, and, and uh, a lot of people come to Crystal from Ruby, and I think these concepts are, are you know, have a lot of benefits, and they're they're different, and uh, you know, as long as they're used well inside the, you know, inside the yep. the language, I think that they're that people might gravitate towards them, and I mean, not might they will, but uh, it's it's really good to see this development. Um, yep, kind of just combining everything I, everything the things I like from one framework and just combining them all into one. Yeah. 
Um, I have, I think a lot of questions <laughs> I actually have listed down just in you explaining things are, are probably kind of already answered in my mind, but I, I have a few here, th- like things here that I think might still be relevant. So, um, you use annotations for yep. parameters and in the controller and for paths and things like that. Yep. How did you, do you think that that was easy to utilize the compiler and maintain type safety? while using those annotations, I've only seen really examples for strings. So I'm not sure if there's other examples where you can really uh, enforce type safety. Like related to the action arguments? The action arguments and the specifically the parameter parsing. So by default in Athena only, like the primitive data types can be used. Example of that being like string, boolean, or like number. Okay. Those ones can be parsed automatically out of the like path parameters. However, there's another concept called like param converters. Yeah, I was looking at those. Which allow you to define custom logic in order to provide like conversion to a more complex type. So the example that I always like to use is say you have a get like user ID endpoint. You'd be able to use a param converter to like consume the ID from the path parameter and then look up the corresponding user object and then provide the full user object to your action as opposed yeah. to doing that boilerplate within the controller action itself. So I saw that and was kind of blown away. When does that database query happen? It happens, obviously, before the controller action gets called and after routing happens. Um, it's just part of the process that is that Athena uses to like resolve the arguments like internally, it keeps an array of all the, like the parameters that you that you have on the controller action, and then tries to resolve a value for each one with like various there's like various types that are like argument value resolvers. One of those being like request attributes. Another one could be trying to resolve the value based on default value that you provide in the action method. Mm-hmm. Or there's a special one where if you type an action argument to like HTTP request, it provides like the actual raw request object. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about it a little bit. I think that that's like a, a, I thought the converters was a really cool and genius idea. I I was just kind of curious if if you would hit performance issues by doing a ton of round trips. But to be honest, most people I feel like or most apps generally uh, do a lot of requests in serial anyways. And then sometimes you have to come back and, and clean them up. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a problem for most clean, apps. Clean them up in what regard? I guess like, uh, I'm just thinking of some things that I do at work, but basically like taking the ID and then grabbing the like nested objects or the thing, like the joined objects instead of like looking up the user themselves and then grabbing something off of them or something like that. Uh, Those type of things of eliminating intermediate queries and things like that. But if you want to do that, you can totally do it with Athena. And if you don't want to, you mm -hmm. can use the converters and just get the the basic things pretty quickly. Yep. Yeah. It also allows like you to reuse the same boilerplate or like create generic boilerplate oh how so and that like if you have a converter that like resolves a like database object like based on the id from the path you can kind of like within the param converter annotation you can also like define custom like configuration data that you could use in the annotation so like an example of that like going back to like the user like database converter you'd be able to supply a, say, like a model type. Hmm, okay. An example of that would be 
like say the user class, and then it would basically do the lookup based on that, which would be whatever you pass dot find in Granite, for example. Okay. So it allows you to use the same code, but like conditionally change what like model class gets looked up in the database oh. on a per annotation basis. Interesting. Okay. Okay. That's pretty cool. I like that. Or the other, or the other example that I have in the documentation is like defining a multiply converter that allows you to specify like what the multiplier is in the annotation. So you could have one multiplying by two and another another route multiplying by three. Oh, okay. Reusing the same code for both. Interesting. And then, of course, you can also test your converters and everything without actually like doing a full request flow. I'm not sure I could like, I think I know what you're saying. I'm not sure I could really like repeat it back. Maybe we can try to sync up later and put some documentation or a link inside the podcast description. Do you think you have sure. anything for that? Okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah I can For those who are, some links. are listening, we'll put some links in the podcast description. I'm guessing to dev.2, but who knows, to wherever. That's pretty cool. I think that that's a really powerful concept. I, I would love to see that flushed out. I wonder if that can be incorporated into other type of frameworks like Lucky or something like that. I'm not sure that con- that concept seems to fit so well with Athena. Yep. Mainly, I think it works quite well because everything's like not coupled to one another. Yeah. You seem to really have some, uh, uh, there, there seems to be like, you've really tried to put boundaries and certain things and break things up. It seems pretty intentional from your yep. kind of start of things. Another thing that I find pretty interesting that I couldn't really, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of warming up to is you have kind of this event listener model kind of built into the app. Correct. Why did you, is that something inspired by Symphony? It is. Yep. Symphony is basically implemented in the same way, but it does have a few more events that get emitted during a request lifecycle and that I decided to not include right now, mainly either because I didn't really see a use for them right now, or just due to the language differences between the two, I deemed it unnecessary. Like in Symphony Land, in order to determine what controller, like a controller in Symphony can also just be like a, a static function, like anonymous function, mm-hmm. as opposed to like an actual class. And I decided like in, in Crystal Land, since like everything's annotated and kind of like a little bit more rigid, I guess you could say, I, we didn't, I didn't really need an event to resolve what controller action like should execute because I would already know based on like the annotation that you put on a specific method. Interesting. But the main benefit that I like about like the event approach compared to like other frameworks use like concepts of pipes, which is another name for like HTTP handler. Yeah, like a module array of basically procs or something. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's like combining the event-based approach with dependency injection. Say I create a new shard, say a theta cores or, or whatever that defines like the listener for like doing the cores related logic Mm -hmm. just by installing that shard and adding like the require athena dash cores dependency injection now like picks that up and like wires everything up and i'm good to go i don't actually have to like add a pipe or add a new entry into like an http handler array or anything okay Uh, what it like for like predictability and reproducibility these are all maybe not obviously these are all run in the same order right uh, listeners, there's a property that whenever you're defining what each listener type, like what events a listener type listens on, it, it uses a hash of like event class, and then the value is a number, and that number is used 
to determine the order in the in which the events or the listeners get executed. It's like the higher the value, the sooner it is likely to occur. You know, I missed that in the docs. That's pretty cool. It's kind of like Z indexes, but for listeners. Exactly. Yeah. If you have, so if you have a a listener that say the example would be Athena's like routing listener that actually takes the request path and tries to resolve a a specific action based on that has like a priority of twenty five. So anything that you have, any listeners that you have with a priority higher than twenty five, will happen before routing, and anything after. Anything less than that will happen after routing. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that would that would allow you to say if you have a security listener for like JWT token validation and mm-hmm. authentication, you could have that happen before like a route the router is even ran. Is it a int or a uint? Is it always incrementing from zero or, or do you go like negative if you want? You can do like? negative. I mean you can do like whatever values you want. I think the, the key is or the values typed in thirty two, but in reality I can't imagine you needed anything. Well, that big? You don't need something negative 2 billion. But uh, no. I was just kind of curious from like uh, what the number space would be. I really like that idea. I'm surprised nobody's added that to pipes in any other language or implementation. I haven't seen it before. It's a very nice implementation in that one, you don't have to like worry about ordering array manually. And then two, it's a lot more flexible, I think, because the listener itself can determine whether it wants to handle, which I suppose you could do in a pipe as well. Yeah, this adds some like really interesting things about like interfaces. You're always working on the HTTP request, right? The a listener gets an instance of the event, which has usually has a reference to the request. Oh. But then you can also store other data within it. So okay. Like the way the way Athena is implemented is there is one event that gets emitted very early, which is the the request event. So the request event is emitted very early in the request lifecycle before routing runs. And this event can be used to listen on to add information to the request or return a response before even triggering the routing. Example, that would be cores. Okay. Then after that, there is a, a view event that gets into a little bit more like internally how Athena works in that if a route action does not return a specific like response object, this event is emitted, which whose job is to, is to convert the returned value into an Athena routing response object. So it kind of allows you to like tap in and to determine how a specific value should be serialized for response to the client. By default, that is JSON serializing it. Oh, really? By default? Yeah. Oh, cool. So I hear what you're saying, and like I'm really interested. By the you're introducing a tremendous amount of flexibility, I am, and this yeah. is uh, kind of like message passing in some way. With message passing, you don't always get a guarantee on your return type unless you basically write a test. Do you think this kind of removes some of the benefits of the compiler, or can you kind of check type safety in some way? You you still get type safety on your controller actions. Or do you mean like the listeners themselves? Well, I, I would imagine the listeners are self-contained, so you get type safety on those. But uh, yeah. I guess more of what I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm mostly talking from like a thought exercise type way, not a specific ah. type way of like, you know, if you use listeners and they're kind of like a, a pipeline, but you, you don't from the actual compiler know which order and what they return, you know, is there a way that, uh, man, you could, you know, do you have to check nils on 
values in the pipeline. Like if you expect a authentication library to add like a, you know, authenticated or not authenticated kind of like warden, mm-hmm. is there a way that that could be nil further down the pipeline or the compiler can't detect things like that, right? An example, I guess would be say you have a listener that sets like the current user. Exactly. Yeah. And in some cases, if you, if your listener runs before that, obviously it's going to be nilable. Yeah. But if you run it, at, if your listener runs after that, you know there's going to be a user in it. So I guess that's mainly handled by similar to like the property like bang method, like the getter with an exclamation point. Yep. That that defines like a not nilable getter as well as like a nilable getter. Okay. Yeah. So if you know that something's not going to be set, then you might want to use like the nilable getter to like make sure that it's set before actually acting upon it or if you know what it is then you can like just not worry about that but you like have to know it right like the compiler won't know it for you correct so i guess there's a little bit less type safety in there but i think for the added like flexibility and everything that you get i think it's a fair trade-off not yeah i'm not trying to debate i love ruby i love some of those message passing features i think that they provide a lot of flexibility i love the idea of uh, priority inside the events or pipelines. I just was curious as 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 introducing this these type of features in this type of manner. You know, you're gaining a lot of flexibility, but are you, are mm-hmm. you losing some of the the things the compiler kind of provides? I think the majority of testing for people is probably either at the controller request down level, you know, testing the business logic of a controller or at really the unit test levels. I think these are covered by most people's use cases like this type of testing, but it is just interesting because uh, one thing I'm really enjoying about Crystal and some of the projects in Crystal is, is really utilizing the compiler to, to guarantee certain things and not have to test them as much. It's interesting. It's, it's definitely something if, if someone's coming in to, I don't even know if you really need to keep it in mind, but I guess it's just should be should be aware of, of the trade-off in general. Yep. I mainly focus like the type safety around like controller actions as like you get all the type safety there. There's nothing fancy. It's just a method with arguments. And of course, if you type the return value of that method and the compiler will, will complain if it doesn't return that type. So what do the controllers return if the pipelines cover the view rendering? Well, the con- if the controller action returns like the specific Athena routing response object, that is, which is basically just a wrapper around actual like HTTP server response object that holds like the status, the content, and the headers and everything. Yeah. If it returns that object, it's just returned as is. But if it doesn't return that specific object, then the view layer kicks in to try to convert like whatever value re- you return into in response object. Okay. If that makes sense. It kind of does. So. Thank you for going through my questions. I feel like a lot of them have been answered, even though I haven't asked them, because now I just <laughs> understand so much more about this framework. But for those that are listening, uh, like a super, you know, we've been down in the weeds, and I'm sorry for those that might have gotten a little uh, um, lost inside the conversation. But what what is like the main pitch of Athena? Why should people pick up Athena when they take a view of the landscape and look at Kamal and Amber and things like that? I think it provides a middle ground between Kamal and like lucky or amber in that it's very flexible it takes a different approach that's not as like quote-unquote heavy or like tied to conventions or specific organizational structures so it's a lot you get a lot of freedom you get a lot of flexibility and you don't have to deal with those like like quote-unquote restrictions but then you also have to you don't have to deal with having no abstractions around like how to do things with like some chemical stuff 
as Kemmel's more or less a fancy router. So if you wanted to implement something, you would kind of be doing that on your own, like every route. There's not like an abstraction layer, say for like pram converters or anything built in. That totally makes sense. I think it is a really good middle ground for people. I think it provides a lot of flexibility. I think people that would use it would be, um, you know, if, if that's what they're expecting, I think they get it from Athena. Athena does not have a dedicated web page where you can go over both of its core design features and its documentation. Is that right or did I just miss it? All the documentation is built into like the GitHub pages, like API documentation. Oh, okay. So like I I just really recently merged in like a PR for like adding a getting started guide that kind of like does a high level overview of like all of like the concepts and features. Oh man, I seem to have missed that. I'll have to go back and take a look at that. Okay, cool. Other than that, I, I try to like add the documentation and examples on the types themselves. So like most types would have either links to other types with the documentation or like documentation with examples. Yeah, you've added a boatload of documentation. For those that have not seen it, there <laughs> it's mm-hmm. one of the more documented projects. It's got a lot of examples and just straight up documentation on things. Um, I thought yep. even just reading through the code, I was popping open a few CR files and just uh, I really liked um, having the amount of documentation you had that wasn't even like just even the constants, just classes, everything's documented. It's super nice that if you're if you're just br- like perusing it and trying to figure out what things do. Definitely take a look. Yeah. So what's your path to 1.0? Like, what do you feel is, uh, what's your target? And like, where are you going? Not anywhere, nowhere close right now. That's for sure. All right. All right. So you you have some ideas. You definitely have some implementations. There's some like more additional, like optional components I want to finish, like mainly around like that serializer that I mentioned earlier. One for like validation side of things. And then something related to like handling security like a more robust implementation of I want this route to only be restricted to people with like this role or feature or whatever. So like role-based access inside the router. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That'd be really cool. That's uh like, you know, like this route is only for users that are admin type thing. Yep. So Symphony has like a concept of a lot of concepts related to like security stuff that I'm not really going to get into right now, but one of them is like the security annotation where you can add that annotation to your route and say has role like active customer and has role like internal admin oh, or you cool. can like or and and those together to like construct whatever expression that you want to be able to restrict your route by. Well, that's really cool. I like that. I didn't realize that that was a thing. Like yep. in framework. Oh, wow. And then you can like also... It's like how you implement it's up to you. Like I know us at work, we use like our feature. We have features that like customers have and those features are available as roles to the router. So we could say things like has like feature role interviews, which would limit that endpoint to customers who have a, that have the interviews feature, for example. Yeah. And And it's just quite flexible. And again, it's like tying into the, annotation set of things talking about interviews and interview features you work at an hr company right i do yeah yep. just so if people are wondering that domain is a little <laughs> interesting yeah. we, we develop applicant tracking software totally makes sense that's pretty cool i really like that idea i think that that's a, a a pretty cool idea i love the ideas you're bringing to the framework system i really hope that uh people from other frameworks can can listen to this and get inspired to, to try get to... Get some ideas. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what's really cool about Crystal and hopefully about you bringing this framework on the scenes is that 
there's so many things that kind of were derived from Rails and have learned from Elixir, which would mm-hmm. be, I guess, Phoenix and other things. But I think that uh, bringing in, um, actually, people might hate this, but bringing in some more Java and PHP and and uh, other yep. ecosystems, there's a lot of cool stuff going on in, in programming in the web. It's cool to bring it all in. Oh, yeah. Find that in one super framework. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you're trying to get, right? <laughs> We're getting there. Yeah. So what do you mostly use Athena for? Originally, it started out as like mainly an API-related framework, as mm-hmm. I didn't want to really deal with rendering HTML yep. to start off with. Which, However, it's not to say it can't be used for that. It, it definitely can, like especially now more than earlier. But I'm still kind of focusing on an API side of things mainly as a way to get a solid foundation as then you can like always build upon that to add abstractions for like rendering html or whatever but if you don't have like a good foundation that's just gonna be changing often it's gonna be hard to like define those abstractions yeah that makes sense so you are using this as an api server you seem to be using in production uh how is it running an athena app and production. And I'm also just really interested, do you have any tools surrounding prod ops or how do you actually like, you know, do, you know, there's no like console or REPL. So how do you do prod ops and how are, how are you deploying your Athena app? Well, the only Athena app that I have right now is like a little side project I started a couple of days ago. Oh, <laughs> currently, yeah, currently it's not really doing much, but I can okay. say the memory usage is say 10 megabytes. Nice. Okay. Considering it, I mean, doing nothing so it's not too surprising <laughs> yeah i guess it's true but nor- normally like docker would probably be the way to go you know crystal build a static binary throw it in a scratch container and deploy that okay so you're just getting started in this framework yourself yep but I you've had this project for a while was there a project that you spun down yep that original eve one like the version three of my of my like eve tools okay okay and that's, how did you that's run actually that? spinning spinning back up oh okay cool <laughs> So how did you run that, and how did you find it running in production? It it runs via Docker on like a, a Raspberry Pi on my desk as well. Oh, okay, very very cool. I think I've like picked your brain a ton about Athena. <laughs> I was actually hoping to cover OQ a little bit. It's yep. something you brought up to me. I think it's really cool. I actually use JQ a lot. Oh, actually, what is uh, OQ and um, kind of what's the idea behind the project? So OQ is a project that I started to allow consuming formats other than JSON, like similar to JQ, like using JQ filters mm-hmm. and then outputting to formats other than JSON. So for example, you could consume a YAML document, document, it gets converted to JSON, you apply a JQ filter to it, and then you could output it to XML. Yeah, this is super cool. I really hope people are following this. I love JQ. I didn't know about OQ. So when I found this, uh, or when you told me about it, I was like, oh man, I'm downloading this. <laughs> JQ is like JSON query, I think is like the original project. You can basically take a JSON and then through a query language, you can get things out of a JSON. Or like totally reformat it or whatever. Yeah, it is amazing for... Uh, you know, single page apps where you have to do certain things or just like nasty JSONs. I have had it on my boxes for, you know, I don't even know since the project, since I first found it, like uh, at least seven years ago or something like that. It is, it's really good for like, uh, I want everything under this key. I want the first element of this. I want like, Mm -hmm. I know that what I'm getting back is an array. I want, you know, the, the nth element in the array, but I want like this key and I want all this stuff. So when you're like trying to like get everyone's or get, 
uh, you have a, a massive uh, JSON payload and you're trying to get all the emails out of it or something like that. I mean, yep. it's just, uh, it's a single line query language instead of doing a full REPL where you have like these objects and nesting in eaches and maps and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's really cool. So from my understanding, OQ is like that tool, but for all the serialization formats. Yep. The O stands for Omni. I love it, man. This is super <laughs> cool. I uh, didn't know I needed another CLI tool in my life until I found this. And then I, I was like, that's super. So like, I, I mean, it's kind of, it's one of those tools that once you hear about it, you're like, oh yeah, that should exist. But like, <laughs> how <laughs> did you it, come across that tool? Like, what was the impetus for it? It actually spawned out of a work project. Really? Where, out of a need at work, where we have feeds that we use to provide our jobs to various job boards, say like Indeed, LinkedIn, Monster, etc. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of those are both like some are XML and some are JSON. Yeah. And we have a new like feed framework that we've been kind of like porting feeds to. Mm-hmm. And up until a certain point, all of the feeds that we ported were, were JSON. Oh, okay. And then we were going to port a feed that was, or was the required XML. Okay. And we were, we were using JQ to do like the transformations from like our format to their like expected format essentially. And we found a project called YQ. There's there's a lot of star Q languages out like CLI applications out there. Got it. And it worked well, but it was written in Python and it was not performant at all. I'm guessing YQ is YAML Q? Yep. Okay. And then also like shipped with something called XQ, which was for like XML. However, it was not very performant with like large XML files. I'd like did a benchmark of like JQ, YQ, and OQ. It was where the big files do not bode well with YQ. It took 190 times longer than OQ or JQ while using 17 times more memory. <laughs> 17 times only a hundred or only 1,700%. That's not too bad, right? <laughs> yeah. And it was a 56 megabyte file okay that's pretty insane now i noticed through looking through this library from my understanding you take in the serialization format like yaml you convert Mm -hmm. it to json and then you run jq on that so i'm surprised that you are doing you know 17x less memory and you're way more performant and all these metrics by still doing that they the other libraries must be doing something bananas I, th- I think they basically load in like all of the data into memory and then like execute it. And just by, f- by fact that it is Python, it's I guess not super performant or the implementation has a bottleneck or something. That's fascinating. Now I mentioned a little bit about the implementation. Do you have any plans to actually implement a kind of a query builder and like actually query these serialization formats? Or is this still something where you're going to pipe everything through JQ? At the, at the least, I thought about writing a C bindings to JQ. Yeah, I noticed that. I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> but in the end, it's kind of just a lot easier to... I'm not going to try and compete against JQ. It's, it's already pretty legit. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When I saw OQ for OmniQ, I, I mean, I didn't know it was called OmniQ. I, I really like the idea. I'm definitely going to have that on, on uh, quite a few of my boxes from now on just because... Well, I deal a lot with XML now, but just in the future, I'd like to get more use of that because, um, yeah, XML, man, and just all those things. It's, it's, it's really nice. Yeah, it's yep. a pain. Some, some conversions are more efficient than others, mainly due to Crystal's implementation as I'm using like the standard lib for 
mm-hmm. YAML and JSON. So like I can stream the input of JSON, like consuming it as it comes in without loading it into memory. And I can also stream the output of XML, like outputting it without loading all of it into memory. So you get very low memory usage when going from like JSON to XML or JSON to JSON. However, you get problems whenever you want to go from say like YAML to JSON or YAML to YAML because or main, mainly just like inputting YAML or XML because I have to load the whole all the data into memory. Hmm. Main reason for YAML is because of anchors. It's like you can define an anchor like earlier in the in the document and then whenever you get to like a specific node in like YAML like you want to copy whatever anchor you had into like that new node. So because of that, it's not really easy to stream as you would have to like go back to see what the anchor was and then like fill that in. Interesting. You're you're covering more of the language than I really know about it. I'm don't know what an XML anchor is. Or YAML anchor. YAML anchor. Yep. It, oh, it's, it's like, like a variable. Oh. Yeah, and then you can do like oh. the, the arrow arrow and then like the star type things and Yeah, I didn't realize those were called anchors. Yep. Interesting. That is pretty cool. You, I think both those projects are, are pretty interesting. I think that uh, OQ is definitely a smaller surface area of a project. Oh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I think the idea was just like, oh, that should have existed a while ago. <laughs> and then yeah. uh, Athena is, I mean, I think a really great addition to the ecosystem. I really hope that more people become interested in it and at least uh, take a look at the concepts and, and possibly use it and give you some feedback. Is Me there... Too. Any um, anything that you need help on or you're working with in Athena that if someone hears this podcast, they might be able to help you with? Documentation and feedback is always good to have. As one of the cons of starting out with the framework is you don't have a lot of people using it. And because you don't have a lot of people using it, you don't really get a lot of feedback. Yeah. And then because you don't get a lot of feedback, then there's no really, you don't get that feedback loop that allows you to like improve it iteratively. Yep. No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So just taking it for a spin and making your opinions like vocal would be would be a great help. Okay, cool. If someone was trying to, uh, you know, find you on the internet, find your projects, what are some places that people can reach you? I am on Gitter, of course, like in the Crystal channel. There's also an Athena Framework channel um, on the forums, Reddit, and Discord would be the main places to find. Awesome. What's your name on those platforms? On the forums and Reddit, it's Blacksmoke16. And then on Discord, it's also Blacksmoke16 with the 0016 as the numbers. Awesome. GitHub, I'm also Blacksmoke16 basically everywhere. I'm wondering, <laughs> that was my Eve character name back in the day. And back in the day? Point, he's still yeah, going, isn't he? He's, he's still going. I mean, that was like 2010, so 10 years ago I started. Okay, okay, cool. And at this point, there's too much stuff relying upon it to change it. <laughs> <laughs> that totally makes sense. I'm Jack with Chicago Crystal. Uh, you can find me on the internet as 123 or W-O-N-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-E. And um, obviously you can, well, you can find Chicago Crystal at chicagocrystal.org or uh, twitter.com slash Chicago uh, underscore crystal or yeah, that's our meetup and YouTube pages. Our YouTube is also Chicago Crystal. Thank you so much for joining us, George. I'm yep. super excited about this framework and, and hopefully we'll see you more around the community and maybe even come back on here. Yeah, we'll see. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. A big thank you to our producer, Christy Flores, who edits these podcasts, and our DJ, Bill Wesley, who provides the tracks and samples for these episodes. 
This was an episode of Chicago Crystal, building community and getting stuff made in our favorite language. We'll see you soon.